You are listening to a sermon preached at the First Christian Church of St. Ignatius in St. Ignatius, Montana. For more information, you can visit us at www.firstchristiansti.org. Good morning, everyone. Good to see everybody here today. Uh, please turn to John chapter 9. And uh, it is, it's a good day to be here because uh, we get to be together and fellowship together. Um, I feel like uh, in some respects I'm not offering this. This isn't going to happen, at least not for me. If you choose to, that's fine. But uh, I feel like in some respects we could go home now and be a good day at church. But um, we're, we're going to get into the Word in John chapter 9. And I want you to know uh, before we get into the message here, it is my prayer every week. Because I, I don't know what you need necessarily. I know that. And when I pick a book and we go through a book or whatever it is that we're doing you know, with the message, it's what I've chosen to, to bring. And I, I think it's what you know, God has led me to bring. But um, I don't know what you need. It is my prayer every week. That whatever we do here and whatever I say here and whatever the content of the scripture is that you will receive through this process, through the power of the Holy Spirit and his working, what you need, whatever that is. Okay, Uh, I I have no illusions here about what my part in this is. And uh, uh, God has allowed me the privilege of participating in this process with you. But it's all him. It's his work. It's him speaking to you through his word. Just say that as a preface to everything, okay? And, and that's my intent every week. So, uh, John chapter 9 is where we are. Now, what I'm about to tell you next is a joke. I want you to know that up front. Absolutely, this is a joke. And I want to warn all the men ahead of time. This is a perfect example of what not to say to your wife, okay? So with that disclaimer, a husband and wife are getting ready for bed. The wife is standing in front of a full-length mirror, taking a hard look at herself. You know, dear, she says, I look in the mirror and I see an old woman. My face is all wrinkled, my hair is gray, my shoulders are hunched over, I've got fat legs, and my arms are all flabby. She turns to her husband and says, tell me something positive to make me feel better about myself. He studies hard for a moment, thinking about it, and then he says in a soft, soft, thoughtful voice, well, nothing wrong with your eyesight. Man, definitely not the response that should have been given. But I tell the joke for a purpose, okay? Because on the other hand, though that would be a bad scene, it's not going to go well from there, right? On the other hand, I think there is some spiritual truth, some important spiritual truth that can be gleaned here, if you can get past that. Let's take this out of the joke realm for a moment and consider some things. Just totally hypothetically. If the husband is right, and the wife is seeing herself the way she really is, isn't that a good thing? Think of the many ways that people see themselves wrongly. You know, some people believe that they are superior to everyone else, infallible, and never wrong. Really annoys those of us that are superior to everybody else, infallible. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. (laughs) Some people see themselves that way. Other people see themselves as worthless and without purpose, inferior to others, unlikable. Some people view themselves as victims 
needing to blame others for anything that goes wrong in their life. And then some people feel like they have to control and manipulate others in order to feel good about themselves. And I think that we understand these are just a few of the ways in which people can view themselves improperly. And that's what all those perspectives have in common, isn't it? None of them are correct. And another thing that they all have in common is that they all cause problems in building and maintaining relationships, both person-to-person relationships as well as the person-to-God relationship. So what's the solution? How do you get people to have an accurate view of themselves? Or if you're talking about yourself, what approach do you use to have an accurate view of yourself? Well, let me ask you this. I'll just tell you in advance, this is an easy question. Who do you think would have the most accurate view of any other person? Okay, who, who, what I'm, In other words, what I'm saying is, do you think that there is someone who could look at anyone who has ever lived and see them exactly as they are? Well, yeah, what's the answer? Yeah, yeah God, right? Or you could uh, equally correctly say Jesus or uh, also the Holy Spirit. God sees each person as he or she really is. That's an important truth. We need to know that and come to grips with that. But that brings us back to the question that I asked a moment ago. How do you get people to have an accurate view of themselves? Or how do you come to the point of having an accurate view of yourself? And I think the answer is one of those things that I say often. It's simple, but not easy. Okay? The answer is you get them to see themselves the way God sees them. God sees them exactly as they are. So if they see themselves as God sees them, they will see themselves exactly as they are. Make sense? Okay. There is a word that describes this, and though we often think of it in other ways. And I bet some of you already know which word I'm thinking of. The word that one definition of this word is seeing yourself the way God sees you. Anybody want to take a... Take a stab at that, what word I'm thinking of. Seeing yourself the way God sees you is one definition of? I saw that hand, Emily. Humility, exactly. That is one definition of the word humility. People often make the mistake of thinking of humility as putting yourself down or denying compliments or words of appreciation that others might extend. That's not what humility is. Uh, There's a quote that's often attributed to C.S. Lewis that defines humility like this. True humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. You've heard that. You've heard that, that, that C.S. Lewis said that. He didn't. <laughs> C.S. Lewis never said that. He said something similar. Uh, but you could kind of see them together, but not, not at all that, that way. Rick Warren said that in his book, The Pur- Purpose Driven Life. But let's stick to the point here. The point is, That seeing yourself the way God sees you means that you have to adopt God's perspective on what life is all about, how life should be lived, here's the important one, who Jesus is, and what that means for your life. Not seeing yourself the way God sees you means that you suffer from spiritual blindness, which is what today's message is all about. This message is called was blind, but now I see. 
We'll start in John chapter 9, verse 1. Speaking about Jesus, it says this, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world... I am the light of the world. As we left off last week, Jesus had hidden himself from those who wanted to kill him, and he was slipping away from them unseen, which is pretty ironic in and of itself, slipping away from them unseen. You explore that on your own if you want to. We're talking about spiritual blindness, and they couldn't see him anyway. As Jesus and his disciples walk away from the temple area, they see this man, and somehow they have knowledge that he was born blind. And as the story unfolds throughout here, we get the information that he's old enough, it's been a long time, he's old enough to speak to himself, or speak for himself, rather, to the authorities. He's pretty well known by the people in that area of Jerusalem. I think in all probability, Jesus and his disciples had seen this man before as they came and went to and from the temple. And immediately, our attention is focused on the question that Jesus' disciples ask about the man because of his blindness, and they ask this, Rabbi, who sinned? Man been born blind. There's got to be a reason for that, right? In their minds, the cause of the man's blindness was either the sin of his parents, and this is this is a tricky one here, or the man's own sin, which he had committed somehow before he was born. Now, why did the disciples believe that? Do you suppose? Well, because that's what the religious leaders taught them to believe. If Jesus' disciples had been taught that. Do you suppose both the blind man and his parents had been taught that as well? What a burden to carry. Then if you had a child who was born blind, now the whole family is pretty much, oh, you guys are all a bunch of sinners, or this wouldn't have happened. It's all your fault. They were all laboring under the same misapprehension that the man's blindness was God's punishment on them, either the man or his parents or both because of their sin. Jesus refuted their false assumption by explaining that the man's blindness wasn't a result of the man's own sin or the sin of his parents. And we could get into the whole discussion about why this may have happened. And, you know, because sin is in the world and the world is corrupted by sin, things like this can take place as well as many others that you and I are both familiar with. But Jesus doesn't get into all that. He just says that in this Case. And I want to underline that and make that bold face. In this case, God wanted to use this particular affliction of this particular man to demonstrate his love, his mercy, and his power. Now, I don't think that this is some universal principle that says that God wants to use every ailment as an opportunity for miraculous healing. I don't think there's a need for that. And I don't think that's what the point is here. But in this instance, it is just so for Christ to work in this man's life and for him to be able to teach others, and as well as the man, more about who he is. We get to witness it from afar. Here we are, you know, almost 2,000 years later, and we're looking at this case, and it witnesses to us like it witnessed to those people then. All we know for sure 
is that God wanted to use this man at this moment to reveal some things about Jesus to the people. And what God wanted people to know about Jesus is what Jesus already said back in John chapter 8, verse 12, when he said, I am the light of the world. Jesus has already made that claim. Remember, we talked about the lighting of the torches there during the uh, Feast of Tabernacles and, and how he is all very, you know, very visual. And that's impressive, but where is the substance? It's easy to say, and I, I could, I'm not going to say it about myself, but if I were to stand up and say, I am the light of the world. I could say that, none of you would believe that, but I could say that. And why wouldn't you believe that? Because there's no substance. I can't back that up. I can't do anything or say anything or be anything to all of you that will convince you that, yeah, indeed, John's the light of the world. No, because he isn't. But Jesus is. And so now, Jesus, having already made this claim, now he's going to prove it by performing a miracle. A miracle of light. Okay? Because this man has never known that. This isn't, well, he was able to see for a while and then he had an accident or an illness and he, he, he went blind. No, he has never had that privilege. He's been in darkness his whole life, literally, physically, in darkness his whole life. That's why this is the right time and the right place. Go on to verse 6. Again, speaking about Jesus, when he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to, to him, How then were your eyes opened? He answered, The man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and washed. So I, I went away and washed, and I received sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. This miracle is a little unusual in that Jesus doesn't even speak to the man before he makes the mud and applies it to the man's eyes, at least not that we have recorded. Somehow, though, the man knows that it is Jesus who tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. We see that in verse 11. The important thing is, I mean, if we, don't, we don't want to lose sight of this in this account here. Jesus, and we could talk about Jesus spit being better than Mama spit. We're not going to do that. You know, Mama spit takes everything off, right? Yeah, Jesus spits better. Uh, he gets down, and he makes, this seems to us to be terribly unsanitary, but these people had the belief that saliva actually had some medicinal or healing qualities, okay? And this guy couldn't see what Jesus was doing anyway. <laughs> I'm thinking, Jesus, where'd you get that mud? I'm thinking that might be a question he might have had. But, um, so, so th he, this happens. And so Jesus does that. What if the man had just said, I'm waiting. Well, okay, but Jesus gave him some instruction. Go wash in the pool of Siloam. Well, why would I have to do that? You're Jesus. Why can't you just heal me now? Couldn't he have done that? Couldn't Jesus just stood back here and said, blind man, be healed? Couldn't he have done that? Sure he could. Why didn't he do that? Well, the man's getting involved here. And he had to go in order to uh, 
receive his sight. You could preach an entire message on the fact that the man would not have been healed if he had not done what Jesus said. I'll leave that for you to work out on your own as well. Let's go on to the next part here. And uh, Carol, this is for you. Okay, Love is blind, but the neighbors aren't. Because I've heard you say that. All right, And I say that because it mentions the man's neighbors taking notice of what's going on here. They notice immediately that he's been healed. Well, of course they would. He's been sitting out there every day of his entire life, unable to care for himself, having to rely on other people. He's begging for his existence. And now all of a sudden he's walking around and they can tell that he can see. They marvel at what has taken place. Isn't this the one who used to sit and beg because he's blind? And it was such an amazing thing that some couldn't believe it. No, that can't be him. It's got to be somebody that looks like him. Uh, th- this other guy, he's got to be around here somewhere. He's taken a break or you know, he's, he's gone for the day or whatever it is. But it can't be him because he's blind. That's a common activity, by the way. When you don't want to or when you just can't bring yourself to believe that God is at work, you try to explain it away some other way. And this is where we get the idea of evolution. We're not going to have time to talk about that right now either. But the man himself, to his credit, and there's a lot, I, I like this guy. I really like this guy. This is one of my favorite passages in all the, all the scripture. He doesn't let this misconception go unchallenged. He doesn't let them say, well, they believe what they want. No, he, sp- he speaks up. He says he kept saying... I am He. I'm the one who used to sit here blind every day, and I'm not now. Anyone who really knew the man at all would realize that, in fact, he was the man who had been blind his entire life, and now he could see. And as you would expect, the neighbors have questions. Well, how did this happen? And when the man tells them that it was Jesus who healed him, they ask the man, where is he now? And I think that's just the dumbest question I ever heard. Where is he now? How would the guy know? He's never seen Jesus. He doesn't know what he looks like, right? How? Yeah, I have no idea. Anyway. The most important question has already been answered. How did this happen? How was the man healed? The answer is Jesus. That's all they really needed to know. Where Jesus is now, yes, that's going to be another part of the story, and there's more that takes place here. But even if this were the end, if this account ended right here, it would be sufficient for us to get the picture. The man couldn't see. He'd been in darkness his whole life. Jesus, the light of the world, came to him and healed him. And it has spiritual implications, which we're going to talk about later. And you're already hopefully filling in those blanks for yourself here as we go along. Go to verse 13. <laughs> this story doesn't end here. Matter of fact, what's about to take place is, uh, I think that, I think it's funny. Uh, some of what happens here. I don't know if it was for these people, but it is to me. Verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God, talking about Jesus. This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? 
His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. The parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him, that's Jesus, to be the Christ, he was to to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Talking about Jesus. Then he answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? Yeah. They reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, speaking about Jesus, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Well, here is an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us? So they put him out. Which means they kicked him out of the synagogue, and well, we'll get to that in a little bit here. Verse 13, I'd like to give the people who took the man to the Pharisees the benefit of the doubt. I hope their intent was to show the Pharisees that Jesus had healed the blind man so that they could see that Jesus really is the Messiah they were all looking for. Instead, the Pharisees are aghast that the man was healed on the Sabbath day. How dare Jesus do such a thing? Sabbath breaker! Of course, Jesus hadn't broken the Sabbath. But they would have thought, that, oh, he, he spit. Now maybe that was work. I don't know, spitting is work. Uh, but then he, he made clay. That's work. He put the clay on the guy's eye. That's work. Uh, Jesus hadn't broken the Sabbath, but the Pharisees were so caught up in their traditional interpretations of God's commands that they couldn't see the Son of God if he were to heal someone right in front of them, which he had essentially done. They, they were blinded by their traditions. And the Pharisees don't like the man's assessment that Jesus is a prophet. So they don't believe that the man is actually blind. Oh, well, you you must not really have ever been blind, right? There's something that happens here. When the man says, this has never even been heard of since the beginning of time, that leads some commentators to think that perhaps the man uh, lacked even eyes. That not just was he not able to see, that he didn't even have the equipment to see. And that in order for him to see now, those eyes would have had to have been generated instantaneously. It's just a thought. It's just a theory. But it's an interesting one. Anyway, the Pharisees interview the man's parents. The man's parents confirm that their son had been blind and that he could now see. But they don't want to get involved beyond that because they're afraid. And here's why. The Jewish leaders had already declared that anyone who claimed that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, 
would no longer be welcome at the synagogue. Now, here today, you, know, you get kicked out of church. Don't get kicked out of church. But if you get kicked out of church, you, know, you can go find another church. It'll probably let you fellowship with them. But not there. If the Jewish leaders had determined that you were no longer welcome at the synagogue, you were no longer welcome at any synagogue anywhere. So this was a very big deal. One commentator put it this way, the excommunicated Jew was literally cut off from all social, religious, economic, or fraternal association. His family counted him as dead. The Pharisees are ignorant about who Jesus is, but they, they're ignorant because they choose to be. And I think that's a, that's a pretty ugly thing, Will, willful ignorance like that. Well, the other way that they're blinded, they're blinded by their arrogance. The Jews summon the man who had been blind to speak to him again. They can't deny that he's been healed, so instead they insist that Jesus had nothing to do with it. They tell the man to give glory to God instead of Jesus, because in their words, they know that Jesus is a sinner. And this is, where, this is what makes this story one of my favorite accounts in John and even in all the scripture, the Jews were obviously used to intimidating people into doing and saying whatever they wanted. But not this guy. Mm -mm. This guy stands up for Jesus by using the best possible defense. You know what the best possible defense always is, right? Yeah, just tell the truth. Yeah, just tell the truth. And that's all he does. He just tells the truth. Verse 25 is powerful, and it is where the title of today's message comes from. The man said about Jesus, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So explain that, Pharisees. Explain that, Jewish leaders. How do you do that? Because you can't deny that. That's the truth. That's all the defense we need for Jesus here. To lift him up and say, yeah, he really is the prophet. Yes, he really is the Messiah. As a blind beggar, this man would never have had the opportunity for education or for participation in the dealings of the elite Jews, so-called elite Jews, before whom he stood. But he never backs down and he never gives in. And I do think the conversation is almost comical. The Jews asked the man to tell him what Jesus did to heal him, probably so they would have grounds to accuse him as a Sabbath breaker. The man responds with, I already told you what happened. Why? Do you want to hear it again? Do you want to be his disciples? Yeah, right. And you guys all laughed when, when I read that part and I just read the scripture. Then the Jews say, well, you, you are his disciple, which actually he wasn't yet. It's kind of funny. But we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. We don't know where this Jesus came from. They just can't stop. It's like, you know, a guy that shoots himself in the foot and he's got five more rounds in the revolver, so he just keeps at it, you know, because he's not done yet. And that's what it seems like these Pharisees are doing. The formerly blind man, this uneducated beggar, responds by saying, you know, that's amazing. You say you don't know where Jesus is from, but he opened my eyes. I can see where I couldn't before. Is that someone that, or is that something that someone that you've branded as a sinner could do? This has never happened in the history of man that you know of. If Jesus were not from God, he could not have healed me. And the Jews can't refute what the man is saying. So, like we saw them to do to Jesus in last week's passage, they attack. The man, they can't attack his logic. They can't attack his information. So they attack the man himself, and they said. They repeated the error that Jesus' disciples had made when they said to the man, You were born entirely in sins. Hmm. All that really does 
is to show us that they were wrong again. The last thing that they say to the man is what exposes their arrogance. Are you teaching us? Yeah. Rick was talking to us this morning in an opening exercise about having a conversation with a, a retired preacher that he described as being 145 years old. Rick, I assume you were exaggerating slightly for effect there, right? Couldn't be a day over 140, right? Yeah, yeah, probably only, yeah. An older preacher who is now retired. And the thing that Rick remarked on concerning this man was that he continues to learn. He still has the attitude of, I'm still learning. Probably been a preacher longer than most of us been alive, right? And read the Bible and studied it all more than most of us. And he continues to learn. These people, these, these Pharisees, these Jewish leaders, they thought they didn't have anything that anybody could teach them. They were supposed to be the teachers. The implication of this statement that they made to the beggar, is, uh, the, the formerly blind man, is clear. We are so much better than you that we don't have to listen to you about anything. And then they put him out, which means that they excommunicated him so that he couldn't fellowship with other Jews anymore, not even his own family. I don't, you know, it would be interesting to know what happened with the family dynamic there afterwards, wouldn't it? We don't get to know that, but I'd like to. The Jewish leaders had blinded themselves by their arrogance to ever acknowledging who Jesus is. It's, you're, you're in a bad situation when you've come to the point of taking what is truth and rejecting it on whatever grounds and saying, I cannot ever accept that. And so that is permanently and completely out of the realm of possibility that I will ever believe this part of whatever it is that's going on there. And if that's truth and you've put that away from yourself, what have you just done? Like I say, these guys are shooting themselves in their foot and they can't, they can't stop somehow. I'll go on to verse 35. Jesus heard that they had put him out and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. There's an antidote to the problem of spiritual blindness. The title, Son of Man, that Jesus uses here, uh, was used clear back in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament as a reference to the Messiah. And that's how Jesus uses it here. And uh, the whole interaction here. This is a key point. I don't, get, don't have a lot in my notes here to say about it, but you think about this. This is a watershed moment for this guy because he comes to the point of having to confront Jesus and what Jesus has done and who Jesus claims to be and having to make a decision about that. That's another thing for you can work out for yourself, okay? Uh, or, you know, we can take another time and, and preach a whole message about that. But here's the thing. We might think it was easy for the man to believe in Jesus and become his disciple. I mean, Jesus gave the man his sight. You'd think, well, he'd do anything for Jesus. But we do have to remember that it cost this man everything. 
to put his faith in Jesus. His life was changed after this. And not, all, not everything was positive in those changes. He had to deal with some very difficult circumstances from now on. Um, yeah. But the good thing is that now the man can see spiritually as well as physically. The antidote to spiritual blindness is faith in Christ. And coming to that point, the man says, I believe the next thing that he does. Now, some commentators have tried to portray this as well. He just fell to the ground in reverence. Now, my translation says he worshipped him. And I'm going to take that at face value. He worshipped Jesus. And to worship, truly to worship, means that he acknowledged Jesus to be God. And did you notice that Jesus didn't stop him when the man worshipped him? Jesus accepted his worship. That's one way, another way, in which Jesus proclaimed himself to be God. Well, light is great for revealing what was previously hidden in darkness. Light shows the way things really are. In spiritual terms, it reveals that not everyone who claims to have spiritual sight really does. But the good thing is that Jesus' light can open the eyes of the spiritually blind and allow them to see themselves the way they really are. It's only the people that think they're self-sufficient that they don't need Jesus who continue to persist in spiritual blindness. And that's what happens here. Some of the Pharisees overhear what Jesus says to the formerly blind man, and they have the nerve to be offended by that. Or what? Are you saying that we're blind too? Well, <laughs> you know, the shoe fits, right? Uh, for them... The idea of spiritually blind Pharisee was an oxymoron, like water that isn't wet or fire that isn't hot. In fact, at least some of the Pharisees were the blindest of all because they trusted in themselves rather than in Jesus. Jesus told them that if they would only recognize their spiritual blindness, he could help them to see, but because they thought they had spiritual sight on their own and that they didn't need Jesus, they would remain blind. And it was their sin of unbelief that kept them spiritually blind. Does anybody know who this is? I mean, I'll be surprised if you do, but does that picture look familiar to anybody? Nope. Nope. Uh, you'd have to probably be a, an Olympic uh, track and field aficionado to know this one. Her, this, this woman's name is Marla Runyon. And Marla devoted her life to uh, pursuing uh, uh, a, a spot on an Olympic team. She, uh, I mean, her whole life was centered around qualifying for the Olympic Games clear back in 1996 as a runner. Her best time finished short of the mark to make the United States team in 1996, but undeterred by that failure, she returned in 2000, and she made the U.S. Olympic team for the Sydney Olympics. She finished 8th in the 1,500-meter race that year, and that was the best finish at that time. That was the best finish ever for a United States woman runner in the Olympics. After her Olympic career was over, she switched to running marathons, and in 2002, she posted the second fastest debut marathon time ever by an American woman. Okay? Pretty good athlete. 
The thing that makes Runyon's accomplishments even more remarkable is that throughout all that process, all those events and times, is that she is legally blind. She is the first legally blind athlete to ever qualify for and compete in the Olympic Games. Isn't that amazing? I mean, physical, physical blindness is regarded as a handicap, but people like Marla don't let it stand in their way. They go on to do things that aren't just amazing for a blind person to accomplish. They're amazing for anyone to accomplish. And that's what she did. She overcame her handicap of physical blindness. But you know, you can't adapt to spiritual blindness like you can to physical blindness. Spiritual blindness prevents you from seeing your own sin which prevents you from acknowledging that you have a problem and that you need to do something about it. Spiritual blindness is like ignorance. We say it picks up confidence as it goes along. Oh, I'm okay. I'm fine. When they're not. People can be spiritually blinded by many things. They can be blinded by misinformation like Jesus' disciples were. They had been taught that blindness and other maladies like that were caused by sin, either on the part of the individual or on the part of their parents. And, you know, sin, sin has consequences, for sure. And it's possible that sin could cause someone to suffer from a disease or injury, but not like the disciples were thinking. People can be like the, they were thinking that, you know, that's the only reason that these things happen, and it's not. People can also be like the Pharisees. They can be spiritually blinded by their tradition. Well, we've always done it this way, and this is our understanding of it, and this is how we're going to do it, regardless of how it really should be. They can be blinded by their own ignorance. They think they know, but they don't know. Or, And this is especially a difficult one for people, I think, that they can be blinded by their arrogance. In the end, the, the root cause of spiritual blindness always comes down to the same thing. It's sin. Sin clouds our ability to see ourselves the way God sees us. Sin can make us believe that we're okay when we're nothing at all like okay. Sin can cause us to rely on our own reasoning rather than on God's clear direction. And remember we talked about the definition of humility. Seeing yourself the way that God sees you. Sin keeps us from acquiring true humility and it keeps us from fulfilling God's purpose for us in our lives. And that's where Jesus comes in. As the light of the world, Jesus illuminates our lives and exposes our sin. He helps us to see ourselves the way we really are, which is how God sees us already. And not in a way of condemnation, of you're good for nothing, you'll never amount to anything, and, and I have no use for you. God doesn't say that to anybody. He created you in His image. What we have done with that image is not always glorifying to Him, but He still says, I love you and I want you to be with me forever and you have value to me and and you have purpose for me and here's how that works. And if we will accept that on His evaluation, the way that He sees it, then we are approaching that spot of true humility. To see ourselves the way God really sees us. But the light of Christ will shine in our lives only if we let it. If we want to conquer our spiritual blindness, we must recognize the truth of 1 Peter 5.5. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We must put into practice 
1 Peter 5, 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. You can't see yourself the way God sees you until you let go of the way you see yourself. You need to acknowledge your ignorance. I don't say that to be offensive, but all of us are in that situation. We don't know everything there is to know about how to live. And God can help us with that. We need to let go of our arrogance that says, my way's fine, I don't need anybody's help. You are helpless to save yourself, and that is why God sent Jesus. God doesn't want you to die in your sin and to spend eternity in hell, so he sent Jesus, the light of the world, so you can see how things really are, and by things I mean you, how you really are. And so you could be delivered from your spiritual blindness. Do you recognize that you are spiritually blind because you don't have the light of Jesus shining in your life? Do you want his light in you? Do you want those words that John Newton put into his hymn that is in so many different versions now and and sung everywhere, Amazing Grace? Do you want those words, was blind, but now I see, to apply to you? If your answer to these questions is yes, then please come forward as we stand and sing our invitation song.